Good morning. As has already been said, I'm Pastor Tim. I'm the executive pastor um, here at Grace Community. Pastor John is away today with his wife, Shelly. They are celebrating their 40th wedding anniversary. So we uh, praise God for them, and we're so grateful that they have the opportunity to be away. I have the opportunity to continue a series that I've been preaching periodically on the Sermon on the Mount. This morning we are going to be in Matthew chapter 7, verses... 13 and 14. It's going to be a little bit different sermon for me because I'm going to spend a little more time in the, before we ever get to the text, kind of introducing this because I want to make sure that we understand something. Um, we have, I've called the, great, the, the Sermon on the Mount the greatest sermon ever preached. I do believe that. I've spent some time trying to help us to understand how to look at it and how to interpret it because if we look at it in the wrong way, if we miss kind of the context of it, we can miss what our Lord is saying to us. It's very important for us to realize that this sermon was preached by our Lord before, obviously, He had not died on the cross yet. So it was written in anticipation of His death, His sacrifice on the cross. It was written to drive people to the cross. What I mean by that, it was written to help everyone know that they need a Savior, Once someone comes to know the Lord, I've said many times as I've preached through this that then as Christians it does give us some very good teachings as to how to live as as citizens of the kingdom of God. I want to come at it from a little bit different viewpoint this morning to help us to try to grasp this concept of of the context of the message. So I want to do a quick walk through the Bible. It's going to be very quick. I'm not going to quote passages. I just want to kind of give you a broad brush look at the Bible. Prior to Jesus coming into this world, by the way, he was there before he came into the world. John 1.1 says that he was with God in the beginning. He is God. He is eternal. And he was with God in the beginning when God said, and listen to the plural wording, let us make man in our image. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and and the Holy Spirit. Man is created, man, I'm referring to mankind. Mankind is created, he is placed in the garden. As the old hymn goes, he walks with God, he talks with God, he has this great relationship with God, this this tight relationship. And then man sins, he eats of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he eats of the forbidden fruit, and sin from that point forward infected all of God's creation. And as you walk through the Old Testament, you see man kind of laboring, trying to get back into that right relationship with God. You might know it as the sacrificial system. As you read and walk through the Old Testament, you see all these different sacrifices that are made to to, um, um, atone for their sins, but none of them last. None of those sacrifices last. Man continually falls short on his own. And all of the Old Testament points to Jesus and points to our need for a Savior. Now, with that in mind, I want it. it, We are kind of conditioned as human beings to think kind of a merit system. I need to do something to earn something. And so we look at the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the mistake that can be made if we can be made, making, can be made if we don't pay attention. If you read through Matthew 
5 to 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount, you see great ethical instruction on a variety of things. I'll just mention a few. You see instruction on giving, on prayer, fasting. You find insights on things like marriage, um, issues of purity, anger, worry, how to make right judgments about other people, just to name a few. And what I think happens is we read the Sermon on the Mount and we think, if I just embrace that teaching and do what it says, I'm going to be right before the Lord. Even we as Christians fall into this trap. And that is directly opposite of what Jesus teaches. Now I want to give you a quick theology lesson. Kind of the two main things that you can catch out of Scripture. How man is saved. How man is made right with God. Some would call it the answer to life. Man has always struggled with these two um, issues, grace and works. We get it all mixed up, and we become merit-driven. So I want you to catch two points before we ever get to the, to the text we're going to look at today. Number one is this. Man is saved by grace alone. Now, I know you know this. I know most of you know this. Man is saved by grace alone, nothing else. And by the way, when you form theology, you've got to look at all at Scripture. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, It is by grace you are saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, not by works, so that no one can boast. Jesus himself, when he begins the Sermon on the Mount, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus' death on the cross can save one. Why? Because Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. D.A. Carson put it this way in his book on the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he says. The Apostle Paul takes the first two and one-half chapters of Romans to prove that all men, all of mankind without exception, stands guilty before God. God is just and holy. He cannot overlook sin and pretend it doesn't matter. However, he is gracious and loving and therefore takes no pleasure in condemning guilty people. Acting, therefore, in conformity with both his justice and his grace, he sends his son to become a man, Jesus, to die as a representative and a substitute for men who could not save themselves the perfect sacrifice once and for all, and that is the only way someone can be saved. But then there's a second thing we need to catch before we get to this text this morning, and that is this. Salvation does come from grace alone through faith. But hear this, believers, Christians, it does not condone irresponsibility. Romans 6, 1, 6, 1 to 4 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue, we as believers is who he's talking to, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? No, by no means, he says. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Salvation that comes from God alone by grace 
once someone has been saved, it should never be fixed or stagnant. It's not like one gives their life to Christ and then just goes on with life as it always was. You don't just add Jesus in, we don't just add Jesus into our lives. What I'm trying to say is salvation does inevitably result in good works. Those works do not earn our salvation, but they are a result of it. So often people read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you are saved by grace through faith, uh, not of yourself, not by works, so that no one can boast, and they neglect to read verse 10, which says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Those who have truly given their lives to Christ have the Holy Spirit within them. We sang about it this morning. The Bible teaches very clearly, you can read Romans chapter 8 as one example, but the Bible teaches very clearly that when someone gives their life, truly gives their life to Christ, because it can be counterfeit, and that'll come up in some passages to come. That's another sermon probably six months down the road when I'm up here again. When the Holy Spirit, when, when a person gives their life to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within them. And it is the Holy Spirit living within them that causes them to think differently, act differently, desire different things. One, one guy put it this way, Please know that we are saved by faith alone, but true saving faith doesn't, doesn't stand alone. A true saving faith will permeate every area of our lives. In other words, there has to be change. A teenager who gave her life to Christ said this. A teenager. This is very insightful. She says this. If being a Christian doesn't change the way I act on the outside, then how can I say there's any real change on the inside? Very insightful. So with that, so the two points are this. You're saved by grace. Once a person's been saved... They do good works. Never forget that. Now let's look at our text. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Listen to what it says. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. This text begins with the command, enter. And it is a, there's a little shift in the sermon here. Many think, and I happen to be one of them, that Jesus has, has preached this sermon and now he's going to conclude it. He's going into a conclusion side of the conclusion part of the sermon. Like every good sermon, he is calling people to make a choice to decide. What are you going to do with what I just said is kind of what Jesus is doing now. That's what he's starting to do. And I don't think people are going to like the conclusion, especially in our culture today, because it is very clear, you can notice very quickly, that Jesus calls us to one of two things. There are no options. There's either this or there's this. But that's not the way we like to think, is it? We don't like just this or this. We want to compromise. There must be more than just this or this. We compromise all the time, and sometimes it's good, folks. I mean, when you have two people that can't make up their mind as to what is right or wrong, like 
a married couple, sometimes they compromise. Sometimes we compromise when in, in the raising of children. We make compromises all the time, but catch this. That's in our human relationships. There are no compromise with God who knows all things and who knows the difference between right and wrong. There is right and wrong, and God knows what it is, so there's no compromise with Him. But we spend a lot of time trying to compromise with Him, don't we? Let me give you just a couple of examples, a couple of issues. How about love? Now, we wouldn't say this to God, but this is what we do. It's kind of like this. I know, Lord, what you tell me in terms of things like love and sex and my body. But, Lord, haven't you noticed we're really in love? Certainly, and, and we're practically married already anyways, Lord. So you need to take that into consideration. There must be an option here that allows me to step outside of what you've called me to do with my body. Or what about authority? I understand, Lord, that you place a high priority on authority. And you teach us about responding to the authorities of this earth in a right way because that teaches me something about responding to you as the ultimate authority. But God, have you seen the guy I work with? Have you seen my boss? He's a jerk. So, God, there ought to be some option in between that right and wrong of your scriptures. Or what about the church? I understand, Lord, that I'm a part of your church. I understand that you created the church to take your kingdom to the world. But, Lord, I work hard. I'm tired on Sunday. Or what about marriage? I know about commitment. I know what you require of marriage, Lord. But have you ever paid attention to who I'm married to? Now, you chuckle, and I chuckle too. But I, I hear that kind of stuff all the time. We always want to compromise with, God, with the Lord. There is no compromise. There's a choice that he lays out. Now, the nice thing about the Lord is he doesn't, he, he, there's no compromise with him, but he does allow you choice. You don't have to go with him. He does explain, though, what I love about the Lord is he explains the consequences of going your own way. And we see that in this passage. So let's take a look at this passage, which I see lots of twos in this passage. Twos of everything. Think of it like this. It's kind of like two ways of living. Two different lives. Um, two different options with very different consequences. First off, you see that there's two gates which open to a way of life. By the way, in Luke chapter 13, verses 23 to 24, Luke records a little bit of this, and he calls, he doesn't call it a wide gate, he calls it a wide door. He calls it a door. So what we're talking about here is an opening to something. And there's a wide opening. It's easy to find. You don't need a navigation device to find it. You don't need directions. In fact, when you're born, you walk through it. One guy says, it's like a city that opens onto a broad boulevard. The road has a wide entrance. It's spacious. It's easy to find and easy to get onto. I, as one who is directionally challenged, had no problem finding it. Easy access. In fact, all you have to do 
to find it is do whatever you want. It's large. There's no limit as to what can go through it. It's not like the airlines. Because of its size, there's no limitation on baggage. A person doesn't have to leave anything behind. Bring it all. Sin, self-righteousness, pride, your lifestyle, anything you want comes along. Everything fits through that door. It's the gate to the world. And by the way, Galatians 3.22 says, declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. But it doesn't seem like that to people, and I'll say more about that in a moment. And then there's the narrow gate. It's not as easy to find. It takes some searching. In fact, it's easy to miss. It can be right in front of you and you can miss it. I did. I missed it for quite a few years. If it had been a snake, I'd have been bitten. Jesus referred to it, to this gate, as being as narrow as the eye of a needle. Matthew 19.24 says, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In order to enter through this gate, all baggage must be left behind. Sin, selfishness, ambition, and in some cases, even family and friends. Jesus in Matthew 10, 37 to 39 says, Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The gate is Jesus Christ. And actually, he's the key to the gate as well. John 10, 9 says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Two gates, which open to two roads, two ways of life. First off, of course, there is the, what, is called, what is referred to as the easy way or the broad road. Actually, in some Bibles, it's translated easy. In some, it's translated broad. Easy, the word that they translate easy really means broad, spacious, roomy. It's easy because there's so many people on it. All you have to do is go along with the crowd, and everyone will love you. At least they'll give you the impression they love you. There is room on this road for diversity of opinions. Any kind of moral, any kind of set of morals will work. It is the road of tolerance, permissiveness. It has no curbs, no boundaries in either thought or conduct. To stay on it, all you got to do is follow all your inclinations. Absolutely no effort is required, and everybody's a winner. Everybody gets a ribbon. Self-love, hypocrisy, mechanical religion, false ambitions, all of it fits on this road. Anything you want, just go along with the crowd. R. Kent Hughes, who I really enjoy reading, very practical says this on the on the wide road if your thing is nature that's okay if it's meditation that's okay 
If it's morality or sensuality, that's okay too. The road has plenty of room for everybody as long as one's thinking does not turn to value judgments. In other words, there's only one thing he's saying that doesn't fit on this road. It's okay to compare and contrast philosophies. But on this road, to say that one is better than the other is an anathema, which means it's loathed or it's intensely disliked. In other words, it all works as long as you don't criticize someone else's beliefs and say that one belief is better than the other. That's the wide road. The narrow gate opens to another road. It's called the hard way or the narrow road. This road is narrow, and by the way, it never broadens. It continues to stay narrow. The road is not only difficult, it, imp it imposes boundaries on what we think and believe we can do. It's hard because it's countercultural. It goes against the popular way of doing things. It's hard because most people aren't on it, which means there's a lot of opposition when you're on this road. The, the easy road, by the way, is free, but the narrow road is a toll road. There's a cost to get on it. Several Christmases ago, I think it was Christmas, might have been my birthday, but one of my daughters and her husband gave me the greatest gift of all time. When I say I'm directionally challenged, I, am, I know you might think that's odd, but I am directionally challenged. I really struggle to get places, and they gave me a TomTom, -tom, a navigational device. It set me free. If, I'm, if I argue with the TomTom -tom and make a wrong turn, it tells me you're an idiot. Take a right here, and we'll get you back where you need to be. It doesn't really do that, but that's the way it makes me feel. Anyway, if... If you, when Margie had surgery up in Redwood City, I punched in the, the address. And when you go to the Bay Area, what that TomTom -tom does is it says, there are toll roads. Do you want to avoid the toll roads? I was like, yes. Who wants to pay for something I ought to be able to drive on for free? Well, the narrow road, you can't avoid the toll. Because you can't get on it without paying the toll. Jesus put it this way. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Luke 14.33 says, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Now that seems foolish, but Jim Elliott, the great um, missionary who died young, um, he was martyred by the Aka Indians, great man, he said this about this idea. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The road demands that all of our affections are to be only for God, who is the creator of life and the giver of salvation. The interesting thing is on, to me is that on the wide road, the world lures us onto it, actually lures us to stay on it would be accurate because when you're born, you're on it. And, but they don't tell you where you're headed. Jesus doesn't lure you onto the narrow road and with false um, promises. He tells you exactly where you're headed. He tells you exactly what you're going to um, come up against. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, 
Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It seems difficult. One preacher said that the signposts to this road are the first two Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. That doesn't sound that great, but stay with me. To get on the road, to get on this road, all you got to do is admit to spiritual bankruptcy. One must come to the Lord with nothing in his hands or her hands except an awareness of their inadequacy. They need to admit they are lost and have no way out. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which men can be saved. Jesus said in John 1.12, Yet to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Each road, by the way, leads to two very different destinations. Two destinations. The wide gate, which opens to the wide road, leads to a city that is called destruction. People that are headed to destruction are on a busy thoroughfare. People are everywhere, pedestrians all around. On the way to this destination, there's lots of laughing. Everyone is carefree, having the time of their life. Think of Mardi Gras. Think of a nightclub. A carnival. Halftime at the Super Bowl. Or think about being at a wedding and everybody's dancing the chicken dance. The song's going off in some of your heads, isn't it? You know, you've, some of you have done it. Now, I'm not saying that that's bad necessarily, but they're totally unaware of everything that's going on around them, and they're just having the time of their lives. That's what I'm trying to illustrate. In my experience, when one is on, this it's on the road to this destination, they're doing everything that they think they want to do. They're sitting dead drunk on the end of a pickup truck on a ditch bank, looking up at the moon on a beautiful evening on a ditch bank. And he declares, it doesn't get any better than this. And then he falls off the end of the, 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 end of the truck and is throwing up violently because of the alcohol and it doesn't get any better than that. And then he wakes up the next morning and does it all over again. They think they have the world by the tail, and yet the entire time they are headed to a very dreadful place. They're unaware of it. But occasionally, occasionally in all the confusion of the world, and maybe in their private moments, they somehow get a glimpse, I think it comes from God himself, of the dreadful end they are headed towards. And they realize they've got to be missing something. As good as they said it was the night before, they realize they must be missing something. And every now and then, someone realizes they are lost and they look for a way out. And the only good thing I can find myself, there may be something else that some, someone could come up with, but the only good thing about the road that leads to destruction that I can find is that as long as one is alive, he can get off of it which leads to the, the second destination, the narrow gate opening to the narrow road, which leads to a city called Life. 
Only a few are headed towards this destination according to this passage. But the few, I, you need to catch this, the few is only in relation to the hordes that are not on that road. See, sometimes I think people get the idea that to be on that road, to, to be a believer of Jesus Christ, to be a Christian, it's like it's just for those chosen few. My sin is too bad. I want you to know God doesn't think that way. There is no sin that is too bad that you can't be forgiven for it. And in fact, to say there are few, let's put it into perspective, because Revelation 7, 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. There's room for many. Remember that to get off the road to destruction and on to the road to life, all, must, all one must do is give their life to Jesus Christ. Everyone is welcome. There is no sin that can't be forgiven. And what I find so fascinating personally is that as hard as it was to find, once you see it, you wonder how you missed it in the first place. As confining as it seemed initially, you find that it's very freeing. All the excuses, all the things that you can think up to keep you from giving up turns out to be better than you ever thought it could be if you'll just give up and give in to the Lord. Before I knew the, the Lord, before I was on the narrow road, I looked at Christians and just thought they were a bunch of weirdos. I saw a bunch of laws to follow, a Bible to read that I didn't understand, but once you get on the narrow road and you give your life to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit brings the Bible alive to you. I know you've experienced that. And I actually thought, I can't do this because I'll have to give up watching football on Sundays. How terrible is that? Listen, the evil one is trying to keep you from the truth of the narrow road. John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Galatians 5.22 and 23, talking about this narrow road, calls it the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Those are all good things. Before I knew the Lord, I was angry, upset, full of bitterness, wandering through life from drunk to drunk, insecure, alone, scared, lost. Nobody would have known that, by the way, because you put up a good front. I had friends that I thought cared about me, but found out they really didn't, and I had a failing marriage. Coming to the Lord, I found comfort, peace, a healthy confidence in self, direction to life, a wonderful community of people, believers who really love you, who really actually totally and completely care about you, a saved, thriving marriage, dearly loved children, grandchildren, friends. John 14, 27 says, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. That's on the narrow road, by the way. I do not give as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Two, two gates, two roads, 
two destinations and two groups of people, two different people, and you are one of them, by the way. The question is, which one are you? On the, on the wide road, if you're on the wide road, you're lost, you're headed to destruction. You're lost because of your sins, as I've already quoted, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're headed to destruction because the wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. There's nothing you can do to get off the road on your own. No amount of good works are enough. How many times have I heard people say about going to heaven, why they think they're going to go to heaven? Because they're a good person. You cannot be good enough before a holy God. Remember, it is by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourself. You can only get off the road by yielding yourself to the Savior. Romans 6.23 says, The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 10.9 and 10 may be speaking to you specifically. It says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then there's the narrow road. Many of us are on it. We are saved. We are headed to life. Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. Realize that on this road, I just want to take a quick moment to say this to you. I think we as believers need to hear it, me included. On this road, you don't have the freedom to do whatever you want to do. If you do, you're going to run up against, you're going to bump up against some of the barriers and the, and sometimes it hurts. But the thing I want you as believers, all of us to hear, is that if you're just doing anything you want to do on the narrow road, the, the, the most terrible thing of all of that is the people on the narrow road are watch, I mean, on the wide road are watching you and you're an example for them to see that Jesus Christ makes a difference in one's life. You're a witness to them. I think we as Christians need to evaluate how we're living our lives because so often we give our lives to Christ and we just go on doing everything and justifying everything we do. And sometimes I, I just want to tell people, you know you're going to have to answer to the Lord for that. <laughs> so be careful. Never forget that you are, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. I need a Kleenex. Stephen, throw that box to me, would you? Thank you. I said throw it, Stephen. If we were in my office, you'd hit me in the head with it. <laughs> Stephen's trying to be a good witness to you. Sorry. Sorry, my nose just started running. Listen, what Jesus is doing in this, in this, uh, here, Stephen, you can have it back. <laughs> in this passage, what Jesus is doing is he's calling us to choice. You choose. And that's consistent in Scripture, by the way. You see it throughout Scripture. You have the right to choose. What are you going to do? Moses in Deuteronomy 30, 19 said, I call heaven... I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life. Peter said in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. One of my most favorites is Joshua. In Joshua 24.15, And 
If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the God the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And Jesus says, enter the narrow gate, for wide is the gate. Many find it. He's saying, what are you going to do? Are you going to pick the narrow gate or are you going to stay on the wide gate? You know, I'm a visual, I'm a visual person and I'm Ever since Brian shared this morning about this egg having to be hatched to, so, the, so that the bird can fly, you know, in my head I see an egg with wings flying around. You know what an egg with wings flying around is? Evolution. There's all these ridiculous theologies that are out there. And we have just seen the truth of the Word of God that Jesus Christ is waiting for you to give your life to Him. He's waiting to put you on the road to life. But don't miss it, Christians. He's also calling to you not to just sit here and say, wow, that was good. And yes, that's what someone else needs to do. He's calling you to evaluate your life as well. I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm going to dismiss you. If you'd like to talk with someone, we'll be up here. You know the drill. Let's pray together. Father, help us. Speak to us. Our desire is to serve you and love you. I pray that you would help us to go from this place and to make a difference in this world for you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.